The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the future of healthcare and healthcare investing. My guests are Barron's Healthcare reporter, Josh Nathan Cases, and Scott Sperling, the co-CEO of private equity firm Thomas H. Lee Partners and chairman of Mass General Brigham, the parent of Harvard University's teaching hospitals. Scott has had a front row seat, you might say, to the unfolding of the COVID pandemic in the U.S. and to the formation and growth of many innovative companies in the healthcare space that might help us to deal with or even prevent the next pandemic. So I know Josh and I are really looking forward to speaking with him today. We'd like to start these calls, however, with an overview of the COVID landscape, which changed last Friday in a dramatic way with news of a new and possibly fast-spreading variant, Omicron. We're all learning the Greek alphabet here. Let's have Josh give us a quick update on the big picture, and then we'll turn to Scott for a look at the potential implications of Omicron. Welcome, Josh. Welcome, Scott. Glad to have you on the call. Hi, good to be here. Um, so look, I mean, if you look just uh, on, the, on the immediate level, we're looking at new cases. Um, new cases seem to have stabilized in the U.S., uh, but it's not clear to me if that's because of a lack of reporting over Thanksgiving or, or a real thing. Um, they're actually down 1% over the last two weeks. If you look at the trackers today, uh, hospitalizations are up, um, deaths are down. You know, before Thanksgiving, we were talking about this this rise in the Northeast, the, another rise that was coupled with very high hospitalization rates in the upper Midwest. Um, that's all kind of old news now. And now we're all talking about Omicron. I mean, what we do know, right, is that it's been spotted in Europe. It, of course, it was first identified in Southern Africa. Um, there's a case in California. And actually, the latest news is there's a second case in the U.S. and the person had recently traveled from New York City and had been attending a crowded convention. So um, it's clearly here. Um, uh, Lauren, do you want to go to Scott or you want me to keep uh, keep going on this? Um, if this is, if you have more to say, keep going and then we'll go to Scott. Well, I would just say that, you know, the, the bottom line here is that the, this is a, there, there's a lot of, this variant has a number of mutations in the part of the virus that is, um, sort of attached to by the antibodies created by the vaccines. So there's a concern, of course, that it may not be, the vaccines may not be as effective. Um, you know, it's really too early to say how big a deal this is going to be. Uh, I think I'd said a few weeks ago on this podcast that the sort of rule of thumb in, with variants is to sort of ignore them until the WHO says something. I think notably, the WHO said something, the most serious thing it could say within a day after the world uh, sort of heard about this variant. So this is sort of different, I think, than many of the ones that we've seen come and go uh, over the past couple of months. But there is still substantial uncertainty, and we really don't know what we have in our hands. So, Scott, with that um, sort of summation, how is Mass General gearing up for the potential arrival of Omicron? So the Mass General Brigham system, um, as you know, is the um, one of the largest, if not the largest high-end clinical system uh, in the country. And so um, we um, have uh, 
the the job of being able to provide um, care to the highest acuity patients, regardless of the um, uh, the disease state. Uh, clearly, during the pandemic, we've had to gear towards those issues that are most central to the sickest of the um, uh, COVID uh, affected uh, patients. Uh, and so um, our ability to utilize um, our resources to provide um, the kinds of um, services that are required of very sick patients was incredibly valuable during the course of 2020 and early 21. Uh, if you look at today's situation, um, given the, um, the impact, uh, the positive impact vaccination has had on uh, patients becoming very sick, if you look at the um, uh, advances we've had uh, in uh, some therapeutics, but also in just the nature of the procedures that we've learned are most effective for the sickest patients, um, we're um, uh, only at a fraction of utilization of the uh, true high acuity uh, care um, uh, that uh, um, we need to provide for patients. We're probably somewhere below 20% uh, of where we were at the peak, even with a bit of a surge that we're having here uh, in New England and the Boston area. I suppose uh, that's kind of comforting, isn't it? Uh, I think so. And again, you know, we can we can look at the uh, various correlating factors um, that are putting people in the hospital. Number one is people who are not vaccinated. The second is certain comorbidities that we've already identified and that, again, we try to get ahead of by you utilizing some of the therapeutics that have been developed, particularly the monoclonal antibody cocktails that we've seen from Lilly and uh, Regeneron. And so the system is uh, very aggressively trying to keep patients out of the hospital by providing those kinds of uh, uh, therapies, by uh, utilizing the entirety of our many thousands of primary care physicians um, and our um, uh, uh, assets that are really geared towards secondary care, such as our community hospitals. Uh, but whenever we need capacity um, for the uh, higher acuity tertiary uh, care patients, uh, we can provide that with the large capacity that we have at both of our large uh, academic medical centers, uh, the Brigham and Women's uh, Hospital and um, uh, Mass General Hospital. And we've been able to perfect, uh, to some extent, Perfect's probably overstating the word, but we've gotten uh, quite good at being able to surge capacity uh, for those uh, patients if we need to. But at this point, we're nowhere um, near where we were, as I mentioned, uh, at the peak. The other thing I would mention um, is that we're also the largest research, as you know, research hospital uh, system in the country, in the world. Um, and so um, many, many uh, things have been tested uh, in our system, including many of the vaccines, uh, much of the basic work uh, that goes into a, a number of the therapeutics and uh, vaccines have been developed by our researchers. And so we're, we're continuing to work very hard um, to try to uh, uh, provide uh, the, the kind of um, therapeutics that, um, that are needed for, uh, again, the uh, more critically ill, but also um, as um, much as possible uh, for uh, patients who are not critically ill to make sure that they um, don't become critically ill.
So when you look at the American healthcare system generally, we've obviously had some amazing successes like the development and rollout of vaccines at unprecedented speed, but we've also had some huge and one might argue inexcusable failures like the highest death rate in the world. So from your perspective, Scott, what has led to these failures and what can we learn from them? Well, I think early on, you know, again, um, we, we, used to, we used the term novel virus and, and that's a term with meaning. Uh, nobody had had exposure to it. Nobody was familiar um, with the appropriate protocols for dealing with patients. And I would say there was an enormous amount of learning very early on, uh, both about the uh, probability of patients with certain comorbidities uh, needing um, uh, hospitalization, and also how we dealt with those sick patients. And part of it was that we we didn't understand early on the nature of the lung occlusions. We didn't understand that this is actually a cardiovascular uh, disease, not just a, um, uh, a respiratory uh, disease. Um, and there was an enormous amount of learning that led to dramatic reductions in death rates for patients in similar conditions over the course of the first um, six to nine months um, that we were dealing with this pandemic. Uh, so, you know, there was there was much that that um, was done in incredibly a rapid time, given that we were, you know, starting with no knowledge whatsoever, um, and we were in many parts of this country. The um, uh, the hospital system was overrun with patients, uh, where we didn't have uh, all the ventilators uh, that we needed, where we weren't sure exactly what the right protocols were for the utilization of those ventilators, and we had uh, nothing in the way of um, therapeutics that would be um, that would be helpful, and all uh, again in the context of not being prepared. Um, as we have not been probably for half a century for anything like this. Um, there's, you know, nobody specific to blame for that. But the fact is, you know, when the government opened up its um, store of um, ventilators, they didn't work. Um, when the um, uh, various systems looked to uh, have um, protective gear for uh, the caregivers, uh, we quickly realized that uh, what we had was totally insufficient. So, um, you know, again, there was a lot that needed to be done simultaneously. I would also say that, you know, the power of science and as we look to the future and, you know, this is true both from a medical perspective, uh, but also from an investment perspective, you know, what has been done as quickly as it has been done is, is, is really incredible. You know, there were people early on who said, you know, it's going to take five to 10 years as it normally does to develop a vaccine or we wouldn't be able to have any effective therapeutic uh, therapeutics available for a number of years. And yet what we've seen is uh, the utilization of technologies uh, and capabilities, broad capabilities that have been developed by a broad range of companies that both are in the uh, pharma world and biotech world, but also the companies that serve pharma and biotech and have developed tools and capabilities that enable those companies to do what we've seen done, which is develop a vaccine in effectively less than a year uh, and um, to develop ones that have efficacy levels that are way beyond anything we would have imagined. So, you know, I think, you know, while there were clearly a lot of issues early on, uh, given the standing start and lack of knowledge, 
in um, in in so many ways about uh, this virus and this disease. Um, you know, it's really quite extraordinary the the progress that has been made. And vaccines is exactly where I wanted to go next with Josh to give me an update on vaccine news and the vaccine stocks. Moderna CEO Stefan Bunsell really rocked the market this week when he told the FT that current vaccines might not be effective against Omicron. Where do things stand, Josh, on the vaccine front? Well, look, I think it's important to reiterate that no, no one really knows. I mean, Stefan Bunsell obviously has a lot of smart people working for him. And he's talking to a lot of smart people, but there, this we, nobody has the data right now to show how well these vaccines do or don't work against um, Omicron. Now, I should also say that uh, yesterday, uh, the CEO of BioNTech, Ugar Sahin, uh, told the Wall Street Journal that people shouldn't freak out over Omicron, and he thinks that immunized people will have a high level of protection against severe disease, um, even if infected with Omicron. Now, how does he know? Again, he doesn't know. As you said at the top, uh, there, there are mutations, a lot of mutations on the spike protein of the Omicron variant that could make it such that um, it's harder for the antibodies that the vaccines create in our bodies to to bind and to to, to kill that virus as it uh, and, and, you know, keep us from getting sick. Um, but, uh, I, you know, what we should say is that Pfizer, I'm sorry, that Pfizer and BioNTech, Moderna, and also Novavax have all said that they are developing variant-specific versions of their vaccines to be used as boosters against Omicron. But what we don't know yet, and what we won't know for potentially a couple of weeks, is whether we'll need those boosters. If we do, um, it'll be a number of months before they're available. Um, but still, we should say that um, they're they're really guessing based on um, a you know, a body of knowledge has only existed for less than a week. Good point there. So circling back to Moderna in specific, the stock has really had some troubles lately. It was down about 11% one day last week after losing a patent suit. And it's down about 4% today, falling below $300 a share. What's going on with Moderna? Yeah, that, so the patent news was uh, was... <laughs> Yesterday, this, right? Yeah, yeah it, it was, was yesterday. Just, my apologies. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, so so what's we should just clarify what's going on with the patent thing. So uh, there, there's a company called uh, Arbitus um, that has a patent on um, certain technology related to the lipid nanoparticle, which is what encloses uh, the, the mRNA, the messenger RNA that Moderna's vaccine and uh, other vaccines uh, use to, to deliver. Or it's, it's how you deliver the, the, the messenger RNA. Uh, basically, Moderna had tried to invalidate uh, those patents. Um, there was an administrative ruling that had found against them. And then yesterday, the federal appeals court that is responsible for uh, adjudicating patent appeals um, concurred uh, with the administrative court's decision or the administrative hearings decision. So um, nothing's really happened. Only Moderna could now be sued uh, by the patent holders. We don't know if they will sue. We don't know anything, you know, what this would mean for Moderna, what it would mean for other Moderna products, what it would mean for other manufacturers of messenger RNA vaccines. Um, uh, so I think the immediate move, one could certainly argue, is overblown. However, um, and, and anything that does happen, you know, if there were a settlement, if there were other lawsuits, we're talking years out. However, I, I think it sort of underlines this sort of broader uncertainty around Moderna. I mean, you got to remember, Moderna is a stock that has tripled in value this year. Um, two years ago, nobody but biotech specialists and investors who are, you know, somewhat paying attention to the biotech uh, space had heard of it. Now it's like probably like the number three best recognized <laughs> pharmaceutical brand in the world. Um, and, and so what we what we may forget is that this company is in some ways a startup. 
and it's still dealing with certain issues around patents. I mean, you saw NIH uh, has a separate uh, patent issue that that they are raising with the company, um, and 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 I think it, it the, the, all of these news stories together are injecting um, some caution into the long term value of this company, which you know only has a single approved product in the market, or authorized product on the market, and. Um, and, you know, has seen its value climb dramatically, dramatically over the last year, although the stock is down 20% since the start of October, including yesterday's drop. So, you know, I think we're seeing what we're seeing is, is some of the exuberance that has greeted this company over the last uh, year or so fading a, a little bit, but you know, still, if you, if you bought Moderna in January, you are doing quite well today. Absolutely. We're learning a lot of things that we didn't know three years ago. Yeah. I think that's for sure. So, Scott, I want to turn now to your other activity, namely as a private equity investor. Healthcare is one of the three sectors in which Thomas H. Lee Partners invests. Why is healthcare such an attractive area for private equity? Well, we've, um, as a firm, we've been investing in healthcare for a number of decades. And early on, it was the identification of strong secular growth trends in the economy that uh, attracted us to the healthcare sector. And we, we were um, re reasonably cautious and careful about the nature of healthcare that we invested in, often uh, turning down things that had um, too much of a regulatory risk to it, and focusing on opportunities where we can either help reduce the cost of delivering care in the system, or where we were supporting companies that provided critical services, technologies, and capabilities to the many pharma and biotech companies that were responsible for developing uh, therapeutics uh, and diagnostic products that were uh, very important to uh, our healthcare system. So the first investment we made back in the 1990s was Fisher Scientific, Thermo Fisher, where I'm still a, um, a member of the board. And What a great success story that's been. It's been a phenomenal company. Uh, Mark Casper, uh, maybe the best CEO I've ever seen, um, current CEO of the of the company. Um, you know, obviously, it's grown uh, as reflected in its market cap, which was about a billion and a half when we when we uh, bought the company, and today is uh, has an enterprise value that's approaching or about three hundred billion dollars. Uh, and again, um, you know, it's really a a, a situation where. Um, they develop products, um, services, and capabilities that help uh, almost every pharma and biotech company in the world and many clinical providers, clinical care providers, do their job better and enable the sorts of things that we, we've seen happen uh, from these, those pharma and biotechs, such as Moderna, that have um, developed these products. Do you think there's a lesson here for public market investors in healthcare in terms of preferring the providers of industry tools over, say, biotech companies with potentially binary outcomes in their research? You know, that that that's a hard call for me to make. I, I would say that we have often thought we're just not smart enough to pick out that biotech that has the drug that's going to work or not work. Um, and so we would rather provide, um, you know, invest in our own companies that do what, you know, um, I just described Thermo Fisher has done. So, you know, we've we've had a whole series over the, over the last few decades of investing in companies that, you know, provide uh, the clinical research, such as Cineos or uh, a company like CSAFE that 
is the um, one of the two um, leading providers of climate controlled transportation devices um, in a world where all biologics need that kind of climate control to be transported. Um, so, you know, we're trying to invest in companies that either, again, help with the basic tools or uh, technologies or capabilities so that all the pharma and biotechs can do what they do best, which is really the intellectual property and the creation um, of the um, of the constructs that go into these uh, therapeutics and diagnostics. The other area that, you know, we've we've uh, felt has been a really uh, attractive area for investment would be companies that also allow particularly clinical providers to reduce the cost of of providing care to reduce total medical expense. So we've invested in companies like Agility, which is the leading provider of maintenance and monitoring uh, of equipment services to thousands and thousands of hospitals and ambulatory centers throughout the, uh, the country. Um, you know, there again, you're taking a business process um, that is not optimizable or ma maximizable, I guess, at the individual hospital or even a system level. Um, and you're uh, having uh, somebody else dramatically improve um, the, um, the economics of uh, the utilization of equipment. And as we know, um, there's been enormous growth in the amount of equipment that is at the bedside, over 70% increase in the last uh, decade alone. And so uh, a company that can take the utilization rate from 40% uh, or under, which is typical of hospitals in the U.S., to over 70%, that allows them to dramatically reduce the cost of that aspect of providing care. And so we're looking for those kinds of opportunities. Um, you know, again, with great management teams, Tom Leonard, who's the CEO there, is also a great CEO. And um, what we're looking for are um, areas where there is good, strong growth, um, but where we also have a very positive impact on some of the bigger macro trends you know, we've invested in providers uh, uh, in things um, like autism care, hospice, uh, providing care for seniors uh, in their um, uh, to allow them to remain in their homes as opposed to being um, sent sent uh, outside of their homes. Um, so companies, um, you know, like um, uh, Centria or Care Hospice in the hospice business. Um, or senior link in uh, the the uh, area of really helping families keep their seniors at home and providing uh, uh, care that can be monitored for them. That all helps reduce the total cost of medical expense for the country. And so that's been another attractive uh, growth area. So, you know, there are a number of, of, of places where you see this uh, confluence of things that are good for the country in the way that we um, develop uh, uh, therapeutics, diagnostics, in the way that we provide and the cost of providing uh, clinical services uh, and other related healthcare services uh, at ever lower cost. And um, those are growth areas from a business perspective, but also, you know, again, quite good for the overall system. That makes sense. It's a fascinating market. You've, um, as you've noted, there's a lot of interest in the private equity market in healthcare, and there's been a lot of venture capital money pouring into healthcare as well. What do valuations look like at the moment? 
Well, you know, as in almost every area um, that we invest in, um, because we try to focus on areas that do have strong secular growth that we think is sustainable. That, as you know, has been a very attractive theme uh, almost across any uh, sector. Healthcare uh, similarly has um, uh, seen that as a, a, an area that people are willing to pay ever higher multiples for. So, you know, prices are, are, uh, are up um, significantly uh, over the course of the last four or five years. Uh, you know, much of it is due to the fact that many of the business models that we're investing in, including in these kinds of healthcare businesses, uh, tends to be more attractive than, than the business models that um, much of the private equi equity industry invested in over the course of the last 30 or 40 years. Um, and, you know, we're obviously in a world where uh, these very low interest rates drive um, uh, or at least are a rationale for uh, the higher multiples that we see both in the public markets uh, and in the private markets. I can't resist asking you what you make of the market's recent stumbles. We've got a Fed chairman no sooner renominated who's turned more hawkish than dovish on monetary policy. We've got concerns about a new COVID variant. Stocks have really fallen sharply in the past few days. Everybody wants to know if this is the big one, the next correction, the next bear market. What's your read on the recent volatility we've seen? How concerned are you about it? Yeah, I, let me preface it by saying I wish I was smart enough that my <laughs> views were actually uh, accurate. But uh, I, you know, look, I would say that there, there are a number of, uh, again, as you point out, a, a number of things coming together. The first is, it, you know, it shouldn't be a surprise that this idea that inflation is transitory uh, is, as, um, you know, our, our uh, Chairman Powell um, uh, effectively said uh, this week, is not accurate. Um, right. We're retiring uh, that word. Yeah, we're retiring that word. And it was pretty clear that, you know, there was a set of drivers of inflation um, that, uh, you know, were not just tied to short-term supply chain issues. So, you know, we've had a dramatic change in energy policy um, that will will continue to lead to higher energy prices, most likely, uh, over the course of uh, the next few years. And, you know, there may be offsetting goods to that um, from a climate perspective, but we should recognize that it doesn't come without a cost in terms of the... Uh, uh, For sure. Uh, the energy pricing that the average family pays in this country and the fact that, you know, uh, as you know, uh, natural gas and uh, other uh, oil related products are often feedstock in not just in terms of direct energy, but in terms of the actual um, carbon is used in a number of different uh, products. So that's all all going up in ways that are, you know, are not transitory. Um, we've seen a shift, um, you know, from a um, uh, a global supply chain where manufacturing was a, was was continually being pushed to lower cost manufacturing geographies. We're seeing that all reverse. So, you know, there are a number of factors here that are policy factors that are really driving us in that direction. You know, obviously we have a set of, um, of uh, federal uh, fiscal policies that, um, you know, as Larry Summers predicted, are highly inflationary. And, um, you know, that, uh, interestingly, you know, the pressure from the administration to continue that trend 
you know, that also may cement in additional um, uh, inflationary pressures. Um, so, you know, the net is that the Fed is now clearly much more focused on the inflation side than they have been at any point in the last really 30 years. You know, I still remember when I first got out of business school, uh, it was in an environment where my first mortgage was 18 percent, where wow. <laughs> We were all guaranteed 10% annual salary increases because inflation was, you know, over that over that number. And, you know, we we have been very fortunate uh, that we've lived for the last couple of actually three decades in a world where inflation has largely been squeezed out. And all the forces that I talked about earlier, you know, prior energy policy and energy technologies, the shift to global supply chains with lower cost uh uh, uh, elements uh, constantly being brought brought into it. That all was very anti-inflationary. Um, now that's all that's all reversed. So I, you know, I do think that that's that's an issue. The immediate uh, issue with um, you know this new strain of COVID um, of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, you know, we don't know enough. Um, it clearly is if you look at the data that we have so far. Um, you know, it, it, it is clearly a strain that that um, becomes dominant. Uh, you know, it's remarkable that in two weeks, I think it is, it became over 90 percent of the cases uh, crowding out Delta um, in South Africa. And I think the equivalent number for uh, Delta in terms of it becoming dominant was more like 60 days. So there is something about um, uh, this strain that that um, you know is seems highly contagious and, and and dominates. Now, what we don't know is how virulent it is. Is it actually less pathogenic than Delta? In which case, if it is and it crowds out Delta, you know, I've talked to some of our of our experts. You know, if that is the case, and we do not know that that is the case, we just have some early soundings from the South African Health Ministry that it might be. You know, that actually would be a net positive. But, um, you know, n nonetheless, uncertainty always roils the market, as we know, and and we we, we are uh, we have seen the confluence of, of that uncertainty on top of what seems uh, to be a real change in the um, uh, the attitude of the Fed towards inflation. Well, your discussion of of a shift in a 30 year trend doesn't make me feel better about the market, but I, it's very interesting. And I'm glad you summed it up that way. I want to save time for questions from listeners because we're just about at the end of the program. And Logan asks what I think is a spot on question for you, Scott, as investments in the healthcare sector have skyrocketed in recent years, what are the qualitative and quantitative attributes that separate the top investment opportunities from the pack? So, you know, again, we are focused first and foremost on areas where there's strong secular growth. So um, uh, companies um, that are focused on um, areas like gene and cell therapy, on uh, providing uh, more uh, uh, effective uh, and cost efficient ways of providing uh, clinical care or helping, you know, our um, uh, incredibly important um, care providers do their job uh, better and uh, easier. Those are those are strong secular growth um, uh, uh, subsectors. Uh, and we tend to first and foremost focus on the underlying industry or subsector 
when we uh, try to cull the the better opportunities from ones that that in some ways may be lesser. And then you know looking for companies that have um, uh, advantage either in terms of their technology or the the nature of the business processes and market position that they have uh, is another key element. So you know we start with industry, we start with subsector because uh, that's something that we can't change. Uh, and then we look at um, companies uh, that have uh, either uh, an existing competitive advantage or that um, we can work with the management team with our very large cadre of operating experts who are on our staff and who are partners in our firm and who have expertise at improving key business processes in ways that can allow those companies to um, uh, achieve competitive advantage. And so we're looking for companies within those very growthy subsectors that we think um, have um, have great potential to uh, to drive uh, leadership in those attractive areas. And so I would say that even as you look at, at public companies, you know, the same sort of thing would would generally apply, which is, you know, uh, is that underlying subsector that that company participates in one that's going to have sustainable secular growth to it? Um, and number two, how is that company positioned? I think one of the greatest dangers in a market where pricing multiples are as high as they are is there are so many things that are sounds alikes and uh, really culling the, the truly uh, great opportunities out uh, away from the sounds alikes is really crucially important. And it's, and it's hard to do if you're not an expert. Too. It, it is hard to do. And, you know, one of the reasons I think overall I'm very optimistic about healthcare and life science in this country and, and globally, is that we have developed these phenomenal technologies that enable much higher probability of successful uh, innovation um, than we've ever seen before. But one of the downsides of it is that those things are much more technically sophisticated and intricate. Uh, and, um, you know, trying to understand and analyze all of that is, uh, you know, to your point, uh, not easy. So speaking of sophisticated, we have a couple of questions about the application of artificial intelligence yes. to drug design and the practice of medicine and surgery. I'm just going to bundle them together. Okay. Maybe you can tell us in a minute or so, not giving you much time there, what the outlook is for the application of AI across the healthcare so, system. Um, you know, Mass General Brigham has been one of the leaders in, in um, actually developing many of the AI technologies that have clinical application. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it can take many forms. Um, when one thinks about radiology and pathology, those are two areas where we have massive, massive amounts of data that um, can be um, uh, aggregated and analyzed in ways where we can improve the, the nature of the predictive tools uh, that we have, number one. And number two, where we have enormous amounts of data that currently is not really even being used. So um, I, I remember um, a couple of years ago as we were consolidating at National Brigham, our radiology efforts across the board, you know, I was told that we currently use somewhere between seven and nine percent of the data that that comes from an image and that using machine learning and other new technologies, we could potentially use up to 50 or 60 percent of the data in ways that would give us a much higher level of of uh, accuracy in 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 uh, not only predicting outcomes 
but also in designing therapeutics specifically for that patient, that form of personalized or precision medicine. Um, and those are AI-driven tools uh, that we've seen. Um, you know, uh, there, there are clearly uh, uh, companies out there that are um, creating the underlying technologies, uh, you know, particularly when one looks at um, semiconductor technology and the use of artificial intelligence um, uh, in that space that are going to be incorporated into uh, tools and capabilities in the medical field that are going to be uh, incredibly, uh, incredibly valuable. And, you know, the, um, you know, the ability uh, to marry together that kind of um, uh, information technology. So NVIDIA, you know, uh, is an example of a company that, you know, has been really at the forefront of developing, you know, the uh, uh, microprocessors, the, the semiconductor technology that is going to be utilized in medical and life science AI. Um, and that same capabilities will also be utilizable in um, uh, the, uh, the research field um, in um, both uh, drug discovery um, and the ability to figure out all the ways that we can modify um, um, certain molecules in ways that make it more effective uh, in the delivery of, uh, of those therapeutics. You know, Thermo Fisher um, has a, uh, a division that, that, that sells these, you know, multi-million dollar, I think some of them are even tens of millions of dollars, um, optical systems, these microscopes that allow you to actually see down to the atomic level what that um, molecule um, looks like and how it might fit together. So you now, you don't have to model it and hope the model is right. You can actually see what's going on. And again, there are many um, uh, things that can come out of those kinds of technologies that are uh, uh, applicable to developing, utilizing AI techniques um, uh, much greater, um, uh, uh, predictability in terms of, um, the, um, the therapeutic or diagnostic that we're uh, trying to create. It's really fascinating. And I wish we could talk about it a lot longer. I had a quick question for you based on things that people have told me. Many people have told me that the biggest advances of the 21st century will result from the application of Moore's law to biology. And practically speaking, what do you think that means for someone born today? Well, um, you know, l l let's just take uh, next gen sequencing. You know, the billions of dollars it cost to sequence a gene less than a decade ago compared to the hundreds of dollars it costs today. I actually, to your point, I, I think that curve actually outstrips Moore's law. And so the ability to continue to drive down our, um, the cost of understanding, again, at the molecular level, at the gene level, um, the genetic level, uh, at the proteomic level, uh, uh, so much, uh, you know, really is going to have an enormous impact on uh, the way um, healthcare is delivered. And I think the... Um, uh, the, the likely um, quality of life and extent of life uh, for human beings. All right. I think we're going to leave it there, but Scott, you are definitely coming back to Barron's Live because there's, <laughs> there is so okay. much more to talk about here. Wonderful. So stand by for another invitation. I want to thank you for joining okay. us today. I want to thank Josh, thank as always, for his great commentary. Thanks.
And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today and sticking around with us. Tomorrow, Investors Business Daily News Editor Ed Carson and Alyssa Corum, IBD's Multimedia Content Editor, will discuss investment lessons from this year and strategies for improving your portfolio performance in 2022. They'll also look at stocks that are announcing earnings next week. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in today. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.